copy of scripture this morning. We're in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. We'll be uh, reading from the English Standard Version of Acts chapter 15, 1 through 11. Your Bible may say at the top, the Jerusalem Council, which is really what we have in these um, verses all the way up until verse 21, it looks like. But we're going to look through verse 11 this morning. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. The year was, uh, was 1517, date October 31st. Martin Luther penned a document attacking the Roman Catholic Church's corrupt practice of selling indulgences. They did this to absolve sin. If you do not know what an indulgence is, then let me tell you, an indulgence was a piece of paper a certificate which guaranteed the purchaser or the person for whom the indulgence was purchased that a certain amount of time in purgatory would be remitted as a result of the financial transaction that took place. Martin Luther rightfully had a problem with this, and in order to spark debate and discussion concerning indulgences, he wrote a 95 thesis, which was a list of questions and propositions for debate, and he nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. Luther became mostly known for his teachings regarding Scripture and justification concerning Scripture. Luther argued for what is known as sola scriptura, which is to say that Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for our faith and practice, 
And in regards to justification, Luther argued for what we call, or what is called, sola fide, which is to say, we are saved through faith alone. Luther argued against indulgences, to say, which was to say that we are saved by works or merit. And he said we can't buy our way into heaven. Interestingly enough, Luther's 95 Thesis, which sparked Reformation, did not deal with either of these items directly, but it is from that Reformation and from the splintering of the Roman Catholic Church that we have come to the conclusion of these great Latin terms which the Reformation was founded on, sola fide, through faith alone, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, and soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And you say, well, why are you talking about this? These verses don't talk about the Reformation. And the reason I bring this up is because there has and continues to be a pursuit of all things ecumenical within the body of Christ, within the church today. You say, well, what is that? Well, it's to bring uh, together different faiths and in essence to pretend like they teach the same thing concerning salvation. In fact, in 1994, there was a number of evangelical and Roman Catholic leaders who came together to sign what is known as the Evangelicals and Catholics Together document. This was designed to say that what Evangelicals and Roman Catholics believed was the exact same thing, and it was to, to encourage greater cooperation. One problem with that is, why did we have the Protestant Reformation? In 1997, there was a second document signed called the Gift of Salvation, again supposedly making a commitment to unity and truth. And we can sign all the documents we want. It doesn't change false teaching. The Roman Catholic Church has never once budged an inch from their statements in the councils of Trent that condemn those who hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is what we believe as the major tenet for our salvation. That's why we are Protestants. That's why we had the Protestant Reformation. Today we have many leaders pandering and going on and talking about different things that there really is no difference between any religion and that they all are the same. And whether you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Roman Catholic or whatever it might be, you're going to go to the same place as long as you believe in something. The problem with that is it's false. While I can come together with anyone on an issue of common grace, such as to stand for the rights of the unborn, we must refuse to compromise the truth of salvation. We have to draw a line concerning salvation. And when the doctrine of salvation is compromised and something other than the teaching that salvation is by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone is propagated, we must divide. And in our passage today, these men from Judea come to Antioch and they begin to teach that unless 
unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. That's what they say. And we notice the response of Paul and Barnabas. Notice they didn't sit back and go, oh, doctrine doesn't really matter. This is no big deal. These folks came from the mother church in Jerusalem and it says Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So Paul, Paul and Barnabas head to Jerusalem to go to get this matter taken care of to figure out what's going on. Listen, don't think that doctrine is not important. Don't get trapped into the, the lie that, that doctrine does not matter. Don't, get, don't fall into that, that uh, lie that says uh, it doesn't matter what you believe because it does matter. The people were saying that the Gentiles had to keep the Mosaic law and be circumcised in order to be saved. Does someone have to keep the law in order to be saved? Are we saved through faith in Christ alone? This is the doctrine that the church was propagating. And it's important not only so that we understand the gospel, but so that we understand the difference between evangelical and Roman Catholics and other denominations, other faith movements, and say that they don't preach the same gospel. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something a little bit different this week than we have in the past. Typically, I like to just grab one verse and go verse by verse and kind of break that down for us. We're going to do something a little bit different. And we're going with the overall theme of this passage of Scripture. And so the first thing I want us to see is this. How is someone saved? How is someone saved? Right in verse 1, we notice that these men are putting a condition on salvation. And that condition was that you had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order to be saved. The people had tradition on their side. Because traditionally, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, then the proper procedure was that the Gentile had to go through circumcision and the family would commit to live in obedience to the law of Moses. That's how they would become um, a, part of the, uh, a part of Judaism. They're not necessarily denying grace. They're saying it is grace that saves you. But it's, it's grace plus something. Which in this case, it's grace plus circumcision in the law that saves. However, salvation is by grace alone. The term sola gratia. Salvation is by grace alone. What does grace mean? What does that mean? Well, the easiest way to define Grace is to say it's undeserved favor. So if you deserve it, that's not grace. Look with me at verse 7. Peter says that God made a choice. That's what he says in verse 7. So this choice is God's choice. It's not man's choice. And what did God choose? Peter tells us the Gentiles would hear the word and believe. That's what he says. Now look down at verse 9. It says, And he, who's he? In this passage, it's God. He 
made no distinction between us and them. Who's us and them? Us is the Jews and them is the Gentiles. God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but he cleansed both by what? How did he cleanse them? Peter says in the verses, by faith. In other words, God saved the Gentiles by his grace alone, apart from their merit or works or anything else. Now look down at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Church, salvation is by grace alone. That's a huge statement by, made by Peter. You would think that, that he would say that the Gentiles are saved just like we are saved. You would think that's what he says, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say the Gentiles are saved just like we are saved. He flips it. Did you catch that? Peter says that we are saved just like the Gentiles are saved. So just like these pagan Gentiles are saved, we are saved. And how are they saved? Through the grace of God. Peter's saying that the Jewish religion and the customs does not save you. You can't earn your salvation. You can do all the good that you want to do. You can keep all the laws that you want to keep. You're not going to earn your way into heaven. It does not move you one fraction of an inch closer to salvation because salvation is not based on your goodness. It's not based on how spiritual you think you are. It's not based upon um, how religious you appear to be. You can devote your whole life to being a missionary or you can be in a church all your life and you can give tithes and offerings and you can get baptized, but none of that contributes to your salvation because the truth of the matter is this, that it is by grace alone. And if we really get right down to it, we would say that the person that's strung out on crack in the street the prostitute that's working the corner, the drug dealer selling his drugs, and the murderer sitting on death row is just as close to salvation as anyone else. Why? Because you can't earn it. It's God's grace. The Bible says everyone has sinned and everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, which means everyone needs justification. And that comes only as a gift of the grace of God through the redeeming blood of his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> salvation is by grace alone. Not only is salvation by grace alone, but salvation is through faith alone. Through faith alone. Sola Fide. Look again at verse 7. Peter says the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Then look at verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. What is the proof that the, these Gentiles were saved? Through faith. Peter says in verse 8 that God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just like he gave the Holy Spirit 
to the Jews. Peter had seen this way back in, in Acts chapter 10. Then, then he went uh, to Cornelius' house. Remember when he went there and Peter had the vision and he learned that God had uh, what God has called clean, that no man should call unclean. And God was preparing Peter to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile people. And he went to Cornelius and, and he took the gospel to him. And when Cornelius' household heard the gospel, they began to speak in an unlearned foreign languages just like the Jews had done at Pentecost and Peter knew that they had received the Holy Spirit Peter is plainly stating that God would not give his Holy Spirit to those people that are lost but by virtue of the fact that God sent his Holy Spirit onto the Gentiles the moment they believed without being circumcised or ever having to follow the law proves that salvation is by faith alone not faith plus anything else Faith cleanses us from sin, and this was obvious when the Gentiles came to believe. God saved them by His grace through their faith plus nothing else. Listen, church, this is where many take a wrong turn. We're saved by faith alone. It's not faith plus something. Every major religion, including Roman Catholicism, Adds to how one must be saved. And it's always works based. For example. The Roman Catholic Church teaches. By God's grace through our faith. And that sounds good. Sounds just like what you and I would teach. And so people say see. There's nothing wrong with that. Here's the catch. We must add to our faith. In order to bring the process of justification to completion. You say well pastor how do you know that? How do you know that's what they teach? Because it's what their teaching calls for. Let me read it for you so you know. If anyone says, by faith alone you are justified, let them be anathema, which is to be cursed from the creeds of Christendom. They say if anyone says that justifying faith alone and nothing else remits sin, or that by faith alone you are justified, let them be anathema or cursed. Session 6, Canon 12. They say if anyone says that justice received is not increased before God through good works, and that works is merely a fruit of justification, but not a cause of justification, let them be anathema or curse. Session 6, Canon 24. They say if anyone says that after justification has been received, all guilt of sin is remitted. Listen, after justification. All guilt of sin is remitted. If anyone says that, if anyone says the debt of eternal punishment is permanently blotted out and therefore there is no more debt to be paid or in temporal punishment, either in this world or the next in purgatory, before they can enter the kingdom of heaven, let that person be anathema, a curse. Session 6, Canon 30. The Roman Catholic Church will say we are justified to God by grace through faith, but not faith alone. Instead, you have to have good works added to your faith in order to have a right standing before God. Justification is not and can't be completed in this life, they would say but can only be completed in purgatory. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church denies what Scripture clearly teaches, and that is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. Additionally, every major religion 
has some sort of works element to it. In order to get to heaven, you have to do some sort of works. And that's not what, what the Bible teaches us. Romans 4 teaches directly against that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And finally, salvation is in Christ alone. Solus Christus. Now, I'm not pulling this directly from our text this morning, but more from the entirety of Scripture, which makes it clear that salvation is in Christ alone. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the Son of God came and lived the perfect life, fulfilling the law of God, and died the perfect substitutionary death on the cross. He paid the price for guilty sinners. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law. He paid the price. And there's nothing left for us to pay. He paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a guilty stain. What did he do? He washed it white as snow. He paid it all. It's not my righteousness that gets me into heaven, but it's his righteousness. His righteousness applied to me through faith in him alone. I think the best way to sum up this first part of the message is through this video I want to show you this morning. He can't do it by himself. 
We are saved in Christ alone. He paid it all. Secondly, the law cannot, the law can't save us. Look down at me at verse 10 and notice what Peter says concerning the law. He calls it a yoke. On the neck of the disciples that neither their fathers nor they could bear. There were hundreds of ceremonial laws that were impossible to keep. These laws included everything like properly washing your hands. And in fact, they would invent laws to keep them from breaking the laws. And the Pharisees, at least outwardly, had the perception of keeping the law. Peter is saying, we can't keep God's law. We can't do it. We may have an outward appearance of doing so, but our heart continually breaks the law of God. If we can't keep the law, then what is the purpose of the law of God? If we can't keep it, then what is the purpose of the law? We could easily get caught up into this idea that, that uh, uh, as we look at the law, that we, we can't keep the law, and because we can't keep the law, that must mean that it has no purpose. And that would be a false assumption. The law is there to show guilty sinners their need for salvation. Paul says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
In Romans later, he will say that Abraham is not justified by the good deeds, but by faith in God's promise. And so you could be saved by keeping the law perfectly if you could ever keep the law perfectly, but you can never keep the law perfectly because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our heart only desires to do what is wicked. We cannot keep the law. The law is meant to, isn't meant to save anyone. But meant to point us to the trusting of God's provision for salvation. And sending his son to pay the price. And to confess that you are a sinner in need of grace. You see the Old Testament sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the, uh, the law was never given to save us because we are weak. Christ was given to save us. Because we are weak. The law was given to reveal that we have a need of salvation. It is through the law that we see that we can't possibly keep the law specifically. Because God's requirement is our obedience to be perfect. Not just externally, but at the level of the heart. And this is exactly what Jesus proclaimed on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you hate someone, you've murdered them. The point is that God looks at the heart of man because of this Everyone stands guilty. No one can keep it. And it reveals to us that we will stand guilty before a holy God. And that's the purpose of the law. No one can keep the law to the point of salvation. No one can do it. If a person tries to make the argument that circumcision is necessary for salvation as these folks are doing, then the Apostle Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3 that they're putting themselves under the whole obligation of the law. James says you can keep the whole law and stumble in one little point and you're guilty of breaking the entire law. There's no one who can keep the law to the point that they are in their salvation. For the person who wants to be saved by their good deeds will always fall short. Because if you mess up one time, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. If you try to add anything to faith as necessary for salvation, that is a gospel of good works and not by grace alone. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Sola gratia, through faith alone. Sola fide, in Christ alone. Solus Christus. It is not possible you saved by keeping the law of God because the law is not just external appearance, but it demands the heart be undefiled. We can't keep it. Now let's see that the doctrine of salvation is crucial for our eternal destiny. Look at verse 5. It says, But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Listen very carefully because this is crucial. If you were to enter into a conversation with these Judaizers, they would have said the right things, much like many people would say the right things today. They would say that salvation is through Jesus Christ. 
Sounds good. They would say that Jesus was their Savior. Sounds good. And most people at that point would be okay and be like, oh, that person, they must know Christ. However, they did not believe in Christ alone for salvation because as we just saw, it was Christ plus circumcision plus keeping the law of Moses. Now, some people might, might say, so so what's the big deal? Why do we care about this? This is, this is really the general attitude today. Well, well, big deal. So that's what they say. They still believe in Christ as their Savior. They must be saved. But they don't believe in salvation in Christ alone. That's why it's a big deal. Because Paul says this in Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, this is Paul, even if we, we, meaning him, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. That's why the gospel is so important, church, but we squander it and we act like it's no big deal. We act like a little change here and a little change there. It's okay. Church are preaching a different gospel and there are many religions today who are preaching a different gospel all supposedly in the name of Christ or God and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to just uh, blast, I'm not trying to just blast Roman Catholicism but, but I believe we have to call out false teaching and false doctrine and a false gospel and the Roman Catholic Church teaches exactly the same thing that the Judaizers are teaching. Someone is saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but they would add that Christ alone is not sufficient to save us because you have to add your good works to it. However, they take it even one step further. They say, a curse to the one that proclaims that faith alone is sufficient to save you. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the word of the church or the word of God? The doctrine of salvation is crucial. For our eternal destiny, we can't drift from the truth and say, well, all roads lead to heaven. We can't say that truth is relative. We can't fall into error thinking that the doctrine does not matter because we must hold on to the biblical doctrine of salvation. And it's not unloving to do so. In fact, it's very much loving to hold to proper doctrine. It is loving to call people out of error. It is unloving to see someone headed for an eternity in hell because they're trusting in their good works to save them and to, save, and to say nothing. That's unloving. It's unloving to see someone heading the wrong way and say, well, they'll probably get there somehow. I better not say anything. I don't want to start an argument. I don't want to start a debate. I don't want to start a fight. I don't want to have a conversation. with. I don't have time for that right now. That is unloving. It's unloving to see someone trusting in a work salvation and to say nothing. Because they're going to end up in hell. For some reason, we have this skewed view of what love is. If you see someone about ready to step in front of a logging truck, and right before they step out in front of that truck, you say, hey, I love you. And then you watch them get squashed and pass into eternity. Was that loving? No. 
And it's as equally unloving to see someone headed for hell and to say nothing. Let me close this morning with this last point. The, the gospel is compromised when we promote unity with those who teach a false salvation. The gospel is compromised when we promote unity with those who teach a false salvation. This point is crucial. As I said at the beginning of this message, there is nothing wrong with uniting with many faiths over something concerning common grace. In other words, we're going to unite with some, I'll, I'll unite with a demon worshiper in order to stand in, in, in stand for the truth of the unborn. I don't care because that's common grace. Or to help with the poor. I'll unite with people. To send aid to a place like Haiti, I'll unite with people. And standing for the right for life, I'll unite. These items are what we consider common grace, which is grace that should be shown to all people. And they're not contingent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, when we unite with other faiths and, and worship and promote unity with those faiths that teach a false salvation, it is sinful. It's sinful. Because it promotes a compromised gospel. In verse 7 and 8, Peter makes it very clear that that the gospel originates with God and not with man. In other words, this is not something the apostle thought up or that Peter thought up or that any other man thought up. In fact, remember, the Gentiles. Remember that Peter felt they were unclean. And he followed the law, so he would have been right there with these Judaizers before that vision was given to him about Cornelius. James reinforces what Peter says in verses 14 through 18, that the gospel originates with God. The gospel is not based upon human emotion, human tradition, human wisdom, or human anything else. But the gospel is based solely on the word and the authority of God. And he confirmed it to the Gentiles. And this is evidenced by Peter and Paul and Barnabas. Listen, church, the foundation for Christian unity is not to decide that love and unity are more than more important than the truth. It is not to decide that the doctrine does not matter, that we should just set aside and pretend like it's unimportant. But the foundation of Christian unity is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any good works that we can do. Works follow saving faith, but they in no way contribute to your faith. It's faith alone and Christ alone that saves. And we have to refuse to stand in unity with anyone that promotes anything different. Because to stand in unity with them, with someone that preaches a compromised gospel, is not only sinful, but it's unloving and it's leading people to hell. Because we won't say anything. And all for the sake of unity. We'll allow people to be duped by a false gospel. And they're duped into a false sense of security. Thinking that they're all good. And they're going to heaven. And we stand by and say nothing. I know this is not a popular message. I know it's not what people want to hear. I know it does not tickle any ears. And to be honest, it may make people mad. 
In fact, it could cause people to even want to leave a church hearing a message like this. But I refuse to preach any doctrine but the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And I refuse to preach any gospel except the gospel that says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what we unite around. Let us not seek unity at the expense of truth. And in fact, when the doctrine of salvation is maligned, let us divide. May we be like Athanasius who opposed the errors of Arius. May we be like Luther who stood against Tetzel's preaching of the Pope's indulgences. May we defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how controversial it may be. Oh, that the words of Martin Luther would echo in our soul. Here I stand. I can do no more. God help me. Amen. May we stand for the truth. How do you respond? How do you respond to a message like this? First, let me ask you. Have you placed your faith in Christ alone? Do you know for sure that if you died today, you would go to heaven because you fit, placed your faith in Christ alone? By God's grace alone. Through faith alone. Not faith plus something else. In Christ alone. Have you done that this morning? And secondly, are you sharing that truth with others? Are you sharing that truth with others? Are you like much of Christianity today? Somebody gives you the right answer and you're done and conversation is over. Do you ask deeper questions? Are you engaging the lost with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you engage them? Are you engaging people? Just this last week, I had over an hour-long conversation with someone about the gospel. They didn't believe. And we sat there and talked back and forth. We talked about morals. We talked about Jesus. We talked about the Bible. We talked about Christianity. We talked about Muslims. We, talk, we talked about everything, I think. I'm not going to let somebody just get off thinking, well, this is just the easiest way. Don't back out of the conversation, church. That's unloving. Dig deep. Are you sharing the truth with others? Do you share this truth? Or do you think, oh, well, they know it. They've been in church. They've done this. They know it. Are you sharing the truth? Because the most unloving thing you could do is watch someone head to hell and say nothing. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you about this this morning. Maybe you think, well, well, I need to pray. I need to pray for my lost friends. I need to pray that I would be sharing the gospel. You can do that this morning. I'll pray with you if you want somebody to pray with. You can do that in your pew. You don't have to come forward. You can do that with me. You can come forward and do it. However you feel led. Maybe this morning you have never placed your faith in Christ alone. And you want to know more about that, I'd be glad to talk with you. You can do that again. You can come down and say, hey, Pastor, I want to talk. You can wait till after the service. Whatever works for you. May you respond to the message of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Let us close with prayer. Father, thank you for your word.